Hello everyone and welcome to the Resilient Sessions, a podcast that brings together injured veterans from Blesma, the Limbless Veterans Charity, and a well-known public figure to share stories of overcoming challenges of all kinds. The podcast provides an opportunity for our guests to chat with one another about their stories, sharing how they navigated their ups and downs so we can learn from them both. We hope you enjoy it. And today we're joined by two special guests, Sai Harmer and Carol Vorderman. Sai served for 16 years in the British Army, touring Bosnia, Iraq, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Afghanistan. In 2009, while serving on the front line in Afghanistan, he stood on an IED, sustaining injuries that led to months of operations and intensive rehabilitation. Incredibly, he was walking on prosthetic legs less than two months after being injured. Simon is now a Making Generation R speaker, inspiring tens of thousands of people with his story of resilience. Best known for her 26 years on Countdown, Carol Vorderman has multiple TV shows, best-selling books and a pilot's licence under her belt. Alongside her work on television, Carol has been champion for and the host of ITV's acclaimed Pride of Britain Awards and has set up her own online math school, The Maths Factor, teaching nearly 100,000 children. Carol is now an honorary fellow at Cambridge University and continues to give bursaries to students from a similar background to her own. Thank you so much for coming today. It's our pleasure. Thank you. It's great to have you both here. Before I sort of ask you any questions on your backgrounds, because we're doing a series of podcasts, and this, the whole reason behind the podcast is because of you, Sai, and we have you here. (laughs) So can you tell us why we're doing this, what conversation we had initially? Well, we were in the back of a taxi, weren't we? We were just sort of chatting about, you know, what we wanted to do next, and, and I suggested that a podcast might be quite helpful because I remember... When I was in hospital, it was the evenings and at night when I most needed to hear something or watch something that could give me inspiration or something to aim for in the future. So we we kind of chatted around that and, and the possibility of a podcast and how it could help people in a similar situation to what I was in. And here we are. Here we are. So yeah, here we are. Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and Lovely Carol, cups of coffee. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, and free chocolate. Thanks, Sai. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so, Carol, why did you want to get involved? I wanted to get involved. I've been involved with a lot of forces charities, particularly on the Royal Air Force side, for oh gosh, fifteen, twenty years, something like that. And then, I had. You know, I, you say, Sai, you know, that I was made the first female honorary group captain in the Royal Air Force. And I cannot tell you, it was the proudest moment of my life. I'd always wanted to join the Royal Air Force. So when I was young um, and uh, from a very poor background, really poor background, and I got to Cambridge and all I ever wanted to be was a fighter pilot. That was all I ever wanted. And I wanted to join. And I don't know why I had this thing in me. I used to, from the age of about five, when you could wander around the street, I grew up in North Wales, a tiny town in North Wales. And so, you know, as a five-year-old, you could walk by yourself. There was no traffic or anything like that, you know. Oh, a car. It was a bit like that. And um, and I always used to go to the memorial garden. And there was a stone only about this high. And it had, you know, the words that we know and love and lest we forget. And I used to go as a tiny child and just 
read these words and sit in the memorial garden. I don't know why. I always wanted to join, but I also knew I had to earn a living. And I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I was lucky enough to be born with quite a good mathematical brain. So I had, you know, all the smarts about me. I drove cars like a lunatic and rally driving at 16 and all sorts of different things. And I got to Cambridge. I was only 17. And you were the youngest woman uh, I was, to yeah. Cambridge. So uh, I'm from a, you know, a northern comprehensive school. It was unheard of in the 70s. It's the third year that the... Boys' colleges were also taking girls. I think I was in the first 50 girls ever to study engineering at Cambridge. And then these lads on the back, you know, back row of the uh, lecture theatre were saying, oh, we went free-flying lessons at the weekend. Well, how would you do that? Because I didn't have any money. And they said, oh, I've joined the University Air Squadron, which is like the RAF club. Uh, where's that? Oh, it's down the road, you're going left. So I trotted at lunchtime, knocked on the door and said, I'm here, you know, I'm doing engineering and I'm la 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 la. And they said, sorry, you can't join because you're a girl. And so, you know, it's 1978. And so my hopes were dashed at that point. So when I was offered the honorary group captaincy, it was, that was like going full circle. Yes. And it's one of the things I do want to talk about is that as you get older, you know, you realise that there are circles and trends in life and that you can make it golden in yes. the end. And I think also you've just said there, you know, you've achieved so much as a woman. You were the first, we said there about Cambridge, you're the first woman to be the ambassador of the RAF cadets. Yeah. One of the most successful women on TV after 26 years with Countdown. What has motivated you Do you know what I think it was? That? I think it was hardship that motivated me. And people are motivated by different things. And uh, my father was in the Dutch resistance uh, during the war and uh, actually stood on an IED wow. by the River Mass. And when the Nazis were had found this little pocket, he was a radio man for the Dutch resistance, and they'd found this little pocket of the Dutch resistance and uh, they ran to the River Mass and the Allied forces were the other side. And... Three of them were in a boat, not my father, going across the river. And they were on the bank and he stood on an ID and the searchlights came on and the men in the boat obviously were then shot. Uh, but my father and a few others escaped back and eventually he came to uh, came over to the UK. Wow. And Was uh, he injured? Yes, he was injured. But this is the irony. So my father, who in my mind was this great hero even I never met my father until I was in my 40s he he had an affair when my mother was uh, pregnant with me and they parted when I was three weeks old and my father would come and see my brother and sister who were about 10 years older than me but would have nothing to do with me so I grew up I had to sleep in a room with four of us until I was nine and then my mum remarried and then she kept leaving my stepfather. He was an Italian prisoner of war. I kind of knew I had to fend for myself, really, and look after myself and make the most of every single talent that I had and be happy. And I've always followed that and never complain about things because there are always people in various situations who are, you know, have it you know, worse than you. So 
be thankful. Yeah. Um, and, and I wake up every morning and think that way. I count my blessings, mm. and I always have. But it's given me a, a, a fire yeah. and a feistiness that perhaps if I'd had my children's upbringing, I wouldn't have that, that within me. But I think, it, I think it's from that. Okay, that's just so, driven you yeah. as well. It's yeah. amazing. And Sai, the same question to you. What do you think is your proudest moment? It's one of those really difficult questions, isn't it? And I kind of have to look... You know, after my injury, when you know I had my children, because you know when I was injured and only just being married, I didn't honestly know if I could have children because of the nature of my injuries. So I had to kind of wait and see. So I was injured in in the October, and then eventually left Sully Oak, started at Heli Court, and then we thought that we would have if if we were to have IVF, we thought we'd have to have that sort of bank of trying until we could have it we thought those were the rules so we you know started trying in the may and we were fortunate enough and you know marissa fell pregnant and and we soon had sophia which is my eldest daughter so it's kind of my kids they're the ones i want everything to be for them and i want them to be a better person than i am and i kind of you know i do everything for my children um or i try to and i really want to i want them to have Kind of like the childhood that I didn't have. Was yours a difficult childhood? Um, it wasn't difficult, no. It was, it, it was sparse. I've got a twin brother. We were looked after and we were loved. We were brought up in a, in a stable relationship. But it wasn't, we weren't rich by any stretch of the margin. And, and I kind of want my children had to, maybe to have the stuff that I didn't have. Carol, you mentioned that your children have had a very different upbringing yes. yourself. Yes. How do you instil resilience and determination in your children when maybe they haven't or they haven't had the but background you've had no, they've, so they've grown uh, up in in wealth yeah to be perfectly honest so I've done it by not spoiling them and they are two very nice young people who work hard I've always said to them you're not better than anybody else and this is from when they were, you know, you're not better. Money does not mean you are better than anybody else. Kindness makes somebody a better person. And we should share things with other people. And this is something that I've kind of instilled, but not just said the words, practiced it as mm. well. They have their father's surname, because Vorderman is quite identifiable. So I never promoted them in any way, as a lot of celebrities do. You'd find a rare photograph of, of my children up until the age of 18, obviously, when the press could, could get at them a little bit. And so they're their own people, and I always wanted them to be their, their own people. And one of the things, because I loved being... I'm not, I wasn't so keen on being a mother to little ones I mean I, I, I did all the stuff as a mother but to little I ones I know <laughs> well, you know going to the park and pushing the swing for the 500th yes. time is doesn't mm, give me a thing no. but mother of teenagers oh yeah so what I did from when they were teenagers as I said right sat each one down as because they're now 22 and 26 I said right I'm not telling you what to do anymore you're going to make the, all the decisions but here's the rule if you say oh I'm not going to do my homework tonight and that's fine but the rule is that we go through do it or don't do it and the consequences and then you make the choice and that's what we did and so they took responsibility for their own decisions yeah, from an early age yeah and it makes such 
I'm going to be keeping that tip. Yeah, such a different. Rather than you are going to do it, you know, doesn't work. Yeah. And what about your own children, Sai? You said you could relate to what Carol. Yeah, I want them to be a better version than me. So I want them to be more than I was kind of like have more opportunities than I did and to appreciate those yeah, opportunities yeah. As because well. I love a, a proverb or a quote and the line you know that we rise by lifting each other I want them to understand that it comes kind of back to what you were saying about kindness that you know you can have all the money in the world you, you, know, oh. you can be you can be a particular kind of person but without kindness I don't think that you're anybody and I think I was quite blessed in in the job that I did in in the in the medical corps, which is where I got to mix with all sorts of different people. And also it was a little bit different than being in the rest of the military where kindness was actually, well, I suppose it should have been in, in the job description really. So can you tell us a bit about what you did in the army? Yeah, so so I was a combat medical technician. So it's kind of a bit of a jack of all trades. We We know a little bit about everything. We know a little bit about trauma and how to treat it, a little bit about... Uh, primary healthcare and how to treat cough colds and twisted ankles <laughs> I'm a little bit of preventive healthcare environmental health because we could be the only clinician or first aider or first responder within a within a you know miles and miles and miles and we might only have access to a doctor on a on a sat phone or a radio and I was often in that position where I would be the senior clinician with no qualifications whatsoever in a remote location and that's what happened. It's a big responsibility. Yeah. Mm. So, and having to make a decision about sometimes quite mundane clinical things, but also understanding the bigger tactical picture about whether someone could be released to go back to get treatment for something, or if I would try and treat them with me. I had to make some big decisions on my own sometimes. So can you take us back to 2009 when you were out in Afghanistan, weren't you? Yeah. And can you tell us what happened there? I was in country for a month, um, and the first four days is acclimatisation training, which is zeroing your weapon and going through some in-house training before you, you deploy out to the ground. So I was actually out on the ground for 26 days. But you've been in Bosnia before, hadn't you? Oh, I've been in, yeah, I've been there twice, yeah. uh, the Congo and yeah. uh, Iraq, and all different. They were all different than Afghanistan, and Afghanistan is far dangerous, more dangerous than anywhere else I'd been. So every day we patrolled, and our, our job was to to exert our influence around the patrol base, both to interact with the locals and to try and make the, their lives better in some way, but also to secure that area as well. So it was extremely dangerous every time we left the patrol base. We would often get into firefights or, or on the radio scanner, which our interpreter had, he would hear that there was a threat that was going to happen to us. And clearly... When things did, did go bad, I had to, to treat those. So, you know, I treated gunshot wounds and, and IED blasts. And it was, it was a real test of my ability. I bet. And what happened? It was in November time, is that right, of that year? I was hit on the 26th of October. And we were leaving our patrol base on a routine patrol. We were going to leave for about three or four days to go and clear some compounds. I left with a bunch of guys and activated an improvised explosive device which took off my right leg damaged my left leg and I got a whole bunch of other injuries and I actually didn't think I was going to make it back to the UK but 
you know, with the advances of medical treatment and, and knowledge, you know, I was lucky enough to find myself back in, in Birmingham a couple of days after I'd been injured. So I was very lucky indeed. Now, in a sort of a sentence there, you've just summed up like this defining moment. Yeah. What was it like after you'd stepped on that IED? So I was unconscious. I was unconscious initially. but that, And I actually remember being unconscious, which is kind of weird. But when I was unconscious, I didn't know that I was injured at that point. And when I became conscious again and then saw everything that had happened to me, because my pants and my trousers had been blown off so I could see everything that had happened to me, then the realisation really sank in. And I was, un- I was under no illusions of my chances of getting back to the UK. And I thought they were pretty slim. As in like, making gonna, it back alive? I didn't think I was going to make it back. And it, it deeply affected me, because I'd only been married for 87 days at that point. And I couldn't bear the thought of leaving my wife back at home on her own. Metaphorically speaking, I, I held on with the tips of my fingers, you know, and, and tried to stay alive, I suppose. For her? For her, yeah. As you mentioned earlier, you got injured out on the ground yep. and then you got cassivacked back to Camp Bastion. Yeah. What so, was that like? you know, they realised oh, I was the medic, you know, and I'm supposed to be treating myself, which okay. I couldn't do. So they had to make Was a there qu- presumably another medic? Yeah, there was two more back up. at our patrol base. And obviously they couldn't come out to me because it would put them in more danger. Um, so they took me to them outside our patrol base, which is where they utterly saved my life there, you know, with tourniquets on both legs. We don't use tubes in a vein. We drill holes into bones to put fluids and, and drugs into somebody. And what they did for me there, stabilising me and actually stopping me bleeding out, utterly saved my life. And then obviously the RAF crews and what they did utterly again saved my life because, you know, we're 40 kilometres away from Camp Bastion. If it was a road trip, which is just would be impossible, I would not have made it back. I just wouldn't have made it back. And then when I eventually got there, it's a team effort. So people from all over the world, from different services from the army navy and the air force all helped me live and they are trained in the nhs essentially so the nhs played their part in 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 saving my life as well in a remote corner of afghanistan you've spoken about this has had an impact on you physically but also you speak about living your life as a thank you can you tell us more about that? Because I know this is something that we'll talk to you about, Carol, as well. Yeah, it's, it's really important to me because I really try hard to live with the idea of being grateful and, 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 and thankful for something. And don't get me wrong, I'm not perfect. I don't always get it right. But I try hard to live that way um, because it's really important for me to acknowledge those people that helped me. And initially, they, you know, it could be like a couple of hundred people, you know, and I could sit here listing off all those different people but to this day it's, you know it's 10 years this year that, that I got injured that runs into the the thousands all those people that have helped me and if if it's one person putting 50p in a charitable pot they've helped me on my journey in some way so it's both people that are unknown to me and known to me that have helped me get to this spot in in time and I didn't do it on my own and would you say that's now your motto for life a little bit yeah absolutely and I think we can all take a sort of a moment to reflect because even the best of us out there, none of us got to where we are in life without somebody helping us. Mm. 
Absolutely. So, Carol, how about you? Why is gratitude and being thankful important to you? I've experienced things that I could never have dreamt of as a young girl and good things and met people I never, ever thought that I would ever come close to. And if I can't be grateful for the life I've had, then it's just not worth having, frankly. And I've always been driven, always been driven by a need, really, to give something back. And the older I get, you know, not far off my 60th now, and I just want to do that more and more and more. I give a lot of time, you know, 40, 50 days a year uh, voluntarily. And education is a critically important part of that. So I live now, and I'm like the oldest student in town now, you know. I'm back in my old uh, Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge. Because uh, you're an honorary fellow. I'm an honorary fellow, so I rent a fellows flat there. And, I, and I'm starting to do a lot more outreach now. Okay. So, so I, you know, from a Northern Comp, uh, free school meals... That was my background, and even today, that's not, you know, I, th- I don't know how many, but maybe 150, 200 across Oxford and Cambridge on free school meals who were taken in. But I lived it, mm. and yeah. uh, and I know, I, you know, I was very lucky because somebody gave me the chance, yeah. and so I want to give back for mm. that reason to my college, which is very special mm. to me. So something I do that I've had help with uh, from the Drive Project and Blesma is to go into schools and and talk about my experiences because if you can get to one kid, I think you've done your job. And and every time I've gone into a school, there's always one... You can get to thousands, though, can't you? you? But there's always one that really you make quite a connection connection with. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. You know that what you've done is is good. And then then the feedback we get afterwards is, is just incredible. But it is this thing about, you know, there is this, you know, obviously as a parent, as a parent, you know, this whole snowflake generation. And they're not like that. You know, And I work with so many thousands of young people who are incredible. And some are like that, yeah. But the vast majority are amazing. But they speak a different language to my generation so we my generation have to start to understand it's just different it's like my mother didn't learn to drive and yet everybody my generation and below would expect as a woman to learn to drive my generation I wasn't allowed to join the air force because I was a woman well my son it was like well girls are the same as boys why wouldn't they have the same opportunities it it doesn't even come into his head that there should be a difference between what's available. But you've made a choice to use your platform for good and to use your voice to make changes. Yes, I have, and I do it more and more and more. But you get so much back, Mm. and I would say those are the greatest gifts. And, you know, the best week of my entire life, and it's been one hell of a life, (laughs) I have to say, was last summer, and it was the RAF 100 week in July, and, and I was so privileged to be in Westminster Abbey for that memorial service and then at Horse Guards Parade. And the sense of duty, and I only do, you know, I haven't done the tiniest, tiniest amount of what you have done and everybody who, who serves and has served for decades. But I do what I can in my tiny, tiny role. But that sense of duty overwhelms me. 
because it's what I always wanted to do. And that sense of service is something that in my trite and shallow industry, which is media, basically, which is about who's wearing what and, you know, have they done this and who's put on weight and lost weight. and They are at the extremes Mm. of what are important. And my heart is with the services. Mm. Uh, My business is on the other side. How do you square it, being knocked back by the RAF and then having been so I celebrate it, that's what I do, because I celebrate the differences over 40 years now. Because you were turned down as a fighter pilot. Yeah, I was turned down as a fighter Well, you know, get a grip for them and you've, you know, gone on and done other things. So I have, I never... I don't have resentment against anything. And believe me, Si, I feel as though I'm talking like about nonsense here compared well, to Some people would, though, wouldn't they? Yeah, but you should never be resentful. You should celebrate change. But I think that's a choice, though, isn't it? It yeah. is You have to proactively celebrate. Yeah. You have to be grateful as, yeah. a, as a choice. You have to make look, that decision. Yeah. You do, but I literally, at least twice a year, sit and count my blessings and I write them down and I and I mark everything out of 10 so I say like you know because they're all everybody's got I feel awful sitting saying this in front of you Si everybody's got problems I'm sorry no but it's true you know know what I mean but it's not a game of top trumps either is it like no and this and you know this isn't a game being in pain or whatever or discomfort physically or mentally it's all valid in my opinion and it but it finding a way beyond it is the challenge so what i do is i separate things into this is how i do it so there can be issues with work or press or whatever it might be or somebody's having a problem in their relationship or you know but if you separate you go right am i living where i want to live and is it yep 10 out of 10 is my daughter really happy and doing what she wants to do and fulfilling it 10 out of 10 is my son is absolutely 10 out of 10 those are the important things right that's actually what your life is about and then you have the other things oh yeah i need to sort that out and then and, and actually then they go Ooh, and they they kind of sit they lose out. their power yeah yeah but, yeah. but yeah. that's such a practical technique that you can use that anyone can use Anybody. to really write, you've got to write it down well i remember being in hospital and this nurse approached me and i'd love to see her again actually because i remember at the time it it, it, it all felt kind of weird. And she came over to me. And she this said, in Selly Yeah, this is in Selly yeah. And she said, to try and find three good things from one bad. And as I was lying there, and I thought my competitive mind came, and I was like, no, it can't be three, it's got to be five. <laughs> <laughs> and so my challenge in my head was to find, as a result of what had happened to me, at least one, two, uh, something that was good as a result. So it could be small, like... I don't know, watching Holmes Under the Hammer on TV or Classic. and which really got me through hospital. Or it could be getting a phone call from one of my mates who was deployed out somewhere else. Or it could be getting into a wheelchair and going down to the pub for, for a beer. Those were the small things. But my challenge to me was to make those things bigger each week or each day and acknowledge them as a direct result of being injured. So today I'm sat in a room in London with Carol Vorderman um, doing a podcast. So it's got to be a good thing as a result of what happened to me 10 years ago. Mm. You've both mentioned about things that you've had to deal with over the years, which have required great resilience on both of your parts. 
some people talk about this light bulb moment where there's this one moment when they just see the light essentially and just go I get it that's how I have to move forward but then the other week when we were chatting someone described it as fairy lights a series of light bulb <laughs> yeah. moments what would you say Carol would you I don't think there was a light thing? bulb moment no. I don't think so I think there are moments when you go I'm not having this you have to like stand up not only for yourself, whether it's for yourself or for your family or for something that you believe mm. in and be the tall poppy. And to be honest, as a, you know, one of the first women in, you know, on national telly, really, when I joined, I think there was I think Angela Rippon had been reading the news for a few years. And then there was Esther Ranson and everybody else was sort of a dolly bird. So to, to have a, a voice that was taken seriously was something. And also there was a, you know, and there still is, a very London-centric attitude in the media. Um, but I had a strong northern accent and people would go, oh, hey, up, oh, oh, oh. So, so it was stupid. And I used to think, well, it's different now. And we celebrate that now. But, it, you know, there are many times when I had to stand up, particularly to the editor of the Daily Mail. But, you know, I got very, I learned to get very litigious. So I'd get lawyers onto whoever said I was this, that, and the other, and as they have done in the past. And then they back off. But that must yeah. have taken great strength to do yeah, that. Yeah, but I, I'm a steely old bird. <laughs> but now I can be a steely old bird on behalf of other people. But you have, I think you've done so much for women as well. And you're kind of paving the way and opening up the doors for women to come behind well, I've always you. Well, I've always done what I wanted to. I don't mean it like look at me but I've taken my own advice I don't I don't follow what the pack is doing I don't deliberately go against the pack but you know particularly now having lived nearly six decades you see there are fashions there are fashions in politics so these things you know they ebb and they flow and so you sort of have I don't experiences maybe it's wisdom that comes from it and you think you don't you don't have to fight every fight. You don't have to, yeah. you know, sometimes just sit back and let, let the other... And let the world out. turn, because it's mm. going to turn still, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And that's quite yeah. liberating as well, it being able to just liberating. go, you know what, I'm just going to sit back. Yeah, just going to sit back and just, just watch it, not get, get as excitable or rush in as as fast although I do tend to rush to the bar at party still it needs popping up doesn't it <laughs> exactly. Sai how about you would you say there was ever a light bulb moment yeah I, I think it was that moment when that nurse came in and just said those words to me and then there, there was there were subtle things particularly at in Silly Oak and I remember as I was getting wheeled to another operation on the walls there'd be pictures of people doing sport or adventure training and I'd go past, and, and actually it was people of all sorts of different abilities and disabilities. And I'd go past, and it was kind of, it was almost like I was being drip-fed inspiration almost, and thinking, oh, yeah, there's someone skiing there, and they're, but they're doing it in a, in a sit-ski. And I do remember that had a profound effect on me quite early on. But also, because I was a little bit older than a lot of the other guys that had been injured, sometimes they'd kind of asked me to go and speak to some of the younger lads and you know help them out a little bit and put a little bit of context into what had happened and and clearly it's not the same even if we both have lost both of our legs I was 33 when I was injured they might be 19 or 20 and that those are two different ages to get injured in the way that we have been so 
for me, I suppose I look at it slightly differently and, and, you know, that light bulb moment for me, I suppose, happened quite early on in, in Selyoak. Sai, you've spoken about how social media has been a, a part of your recovery. Yeah, yeah I, something yeah, easy to do. Because it was a voice that I could, one, speak to, to my family back at home in the middle of the desert in Afghanistan with using uh, the technology we had then. Yeah. So we could still it's very different then. Absolutely, because yeah. when I first went to Bosnia, it was a bluey. It was a letter that you had to write and send in the post and wait for one to come back to you. You know, now I could come back in from a patrol after being in a in a firefight, get onto Facebook yeah. and chat with my wife back at home. And then after I was injured again, it was a means of com- speaking to people and reassuring them to say I'm okay, rather than them being left with a void of not knowing how I'm doing and what I'm thinking and and where I'm at. So I remember it was something easy for me to get involved in quite early on and use it as a platform to hopefully try and inspire others to do stuff, whether it was either raising money for another charitable challenge that I'm doing or just something that I've seen that I can put into my own context and, and say, you know, look at this, this is inspiration and and this is the kind of thing that i hope inspires you too and using your platform for good which yeah. we spoke about earlier yeah both the good and the bad you know i've seen the bad yeah, part of it as well sure. you know. and so yeah. carol tell us about you and your well experience I, my experience media. i haven't really got much experience on it but you've um, got yeah quite twitter. a few followers yeah well I, I enjoy twitter i have no qualms about blocking anybody but i'm very lucky so you know i must get i don't know a thousand people sending me something a day two a week maybe are not very nice so how do you cope with that though I'd find that totally overwhelming oh I've been through far worse I mean I genuinely have been through far worse so it's water off a duck's back to me I I am resilient let's say but I'm also you know my 50s have been the best decade of my life so I learned to fly in my 50s one of the greatest days of my life was when I because I remember I used to I had a single engine plane then and the first time I ever went solo in my own plane and this was I was driving up to the airfield at Staverton Gloucester I thought do you know what younger Carol could never ever 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 have dreamt this I got in my plane I flew solo to Cambridge significant first solo in my own plane flew to Cambridge went to see my daughter and we went to the Cambridge University Air Squadron building who had refused me all those years ago to celebrate the fact that she was allowed she was in air squadron for four years in uniform and my daughter was at Cambridge University doing nanotechnology doing a PhD now and I never thought that could happen when I was young because it couldn't have happened when I was young the world's a good place to be in and I still believe that and I know that there are issues there have always been issues you know as we know when we talk to World War II veterans who were bigger issues when they were young and so I'm always looking for the positive but always ready to fight when something negative comes through and fight against it i've met billionaires you know i mean some are happy but if money is your pursuit if that's all it is i mean i pursued money for financial stability and security really because my home kept getting taken away from me whenever mum left my stepfather we would go into digs yet again you know through my teens I remember we, she ran off to the circus once with me in Leicester. We had one room with a broken window opposite Leicester Prison. 
And, you know, when you're nine, that's like, oh, here we are again. And I had to, you know, had to change a school and all of this kind of thing. And you, you crave security. You crave that nobody can take that away from you or your children. And that's what I've achieved. It's not about money. No. Does that make sense? It's a big difference. Yeah, it's stability. And and those who are just after adding another number to a number, there's no point. And I have seen a lot of those people who've done that, they're not necessarily more content or happy or joyful or, you know, it's wonderful to be a person like Sai who can come into a room and light up a room. That's joy. That's giving and those are the people that you want to be around because they make your life better. And then you learn from people like Sai, you know, that actually, come on, let's celebrate what we have. That's how I feel, being able to work with, you know, people like you, Sai, it's a, it's a privilege. Thank you very much. I mean, just working in, in this space, like, helps me because I'm with people that bad stuff's happened to. And I think we all kind of rely on each other to make sure that, we keep each other sane a little bit and keep each other on the straight and narrow almost and going in in forward and not looking at the bad stuff that's happened. Yeah. I mean, I just remember, and I'm not the first person to experience this, but I, there's, there's being scared and then there's all-encompassing physical fear. And I never knew what it was like until I w- went to Afghanistan. I mean, there was elements of that in Iraq and and um, and the Congo, but not as much as in, in Afghanistan, where you were not sure if everybody was going to come back in with you that day. How do you deal with that? How do you get through something like that? I suppose it's just all... It, I don't know, because I don't really give much thought to it, You really. just do it. Yeah, you just... Yeah. Because I try to live in the present, not in the past. Because, yeah. yeah. you know, having a look in the rear mirror is fine, but we are going forward in life and we can learn lessons from the past, but we're not living anymore. And for me, it's about just going forward and, and looking to the future and, and hopefully all of us collectively not making mistakes that we have in the past. So would you say, and I'm going to ask the question to both of you, would you say that you're happy? I am the happiest I've ever been in my life. And I just get happier and happier and happier. Things come along the road, obstacles. It just gets better and better. But a lot of that joy comes from working with young people and from things that, quite honestly, mainly from things that I'm not paid to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what would you say to your nine-year-old self who was... I'd say, carry, carry on doing your sums, Carol. It's going to take yeah. you far. That's what I'd say, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Si? You know, because people ask me, well, if, you could go, if you could go back in time, would you still join the, the military? And I'd mm. always say yes, because you cannot second-guess a, a decision you've made. Yeah. You can apologise for stuff you've done wrong, or if you've upset one, or, or if, you've, if you've hurt someone, you can apologise for it. But I don't think you can ever... You can't second guess the past because you don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to mess up today. Because every decision you yeah. make is a good decision until yeah. it isn't. <laughs> good point. <laughs> you, know, you know, I'd never go back to my former self and say, you might not want to join the army. Yeah. Because I had some awesome times in the army. Yeah, exactly. You know, even yeah. when I was cold, wet and hungry, you know, I look back at them and just think they're funny. 
you know, falling in a ditch and upside down and having to get your mate to pull you back, you know, to pull you back out because you can't actually move. Those are the funny things, and that's what you know. A little bit of hardship doesn't hurt anybody. And it is strange. Don't you think it's strange now when people, you know, who earn a lot of money, not in the forces, they go, go off and they earn a lot of money. With it, they're just craving adventures, which are partially what people in the services can do and do do. And it, it, it's, I, yeah. I don't know, I, think, I find that very interesting. They're yeah. craving these adventures And it's now. meaningful experiences. Because everything that they're doing at work is kind of just... Mundane. Well, it's not necessarily mundane. It's just not totally fulfilling. Mm. For yeah. Them. That's what I... Because it's like being, a, you know, like, it's like being a, you know, a hamster on a wheel, isn't it? Just going round and round yeah. and sometimes you need to jump yeah. off it. Yeah, do something different. Mm. Yeah. Now, Carol, you have hosted the Pride of Britain Awards oh, for the last the twenty years. Yeah. You must have heard some amazing stories. Yes, yeah. um, Many of them from the military. Who uh, really stands out for you? Can you? Oh, pick unfair one? question. <laughs> well, there are hundreds of. Pride of Britain award winners. Two of my very best friends I met because they've won awards. And why do you think it's important that we, the audience and sort of general public, hear these stories? I I think because there's something within us as human beings where we recognise goodness and it triggers something that it's almost animalistic in a good way. Does that make sense? Because it's a story, it's someone's story... And you're learning about them. And actually, it comes back to this whole thing about being grateful, doesn't it? It engages you with your heart. And then I think once totally. you're, it gets you there, and yeah. then suddenly it's like, I'm listening And then after now. it, you think, do you know what? The world, you, you think the world is a good... For mm. these people to be in the world, it, it's actually a good place to be in. Yeah, that's lovely. Well, yeah, yeah congratulations. That's well, I, totally I amazing. Just, they'll kick me out one day, but um. <laughs> not for a while. <laughs> um, and how about you, Sai? You have spent the last 10 years raising over a million pounds for charity. Uh, what has motivated you to do that? Do you know what? I just felt I, I was getting help early on, even if it's something simple like having a wash kit and some clothes. I didn't even have my wedding ring on when I came back from Afghanistan. So it's, it's even the little things that have helped, you know, helped me along the way. From from charities? Yeah, from various different charities. So I felt that I owed them a debt in some way and I had to pay back what I'd just taken. But not just pay it back, hopefully add some value to what I'd just taken from them and it was there for the next person to use. I felt I owed them that money back. Okay. And there was a real, as Carol said, a sense of duty as yeah, well. Yeah, I felt... I, it's not that I felt uncomfortable being given it because we're very British in that sense, aren't we? Yeah, where, we are, yeah. <laughs> you know, where you, oh, you've just been given this, or better give it back. Um, <laughs> so yeah, for me, it was it was about replacing what I had just taken, and uh, so it was there for the next person coming through because you know there was a long line of us coming through that conveyor belt, you know, Silly Oak and Hilly Court. That's a pretty amazing legacy over a million pounds. It's a, it is incredible. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, but I had a lot of fun doing it on the way as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> now, we're coming to the end of our podcast. And thank you to you both so much for sharing. How have you found the conversation today? Well, for me, actually, I've learned loads about Carol that, you know, you don't really share. Yeah, I, is, me too. I, yeah, you know, I mean, even in all the research. And also, like, amazing. you know, I know how like, kids learn. So how you learn whilst going through what you did, I'll never know. You know, because I had a pretty secure 
upbringing and I learned nothing. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Carol? Well, it, I mean, Sai is incredible. Mm. And I didn't realise that you'd raised over a million pounds, which is an extraordinary number. I think it's wonderful that you've got three young children. Yeah, they and And that, you know, they've got this great dad and they're going to have a great future. And you said your youngest is a bit of a tomboy, is that right? She's just a complete savage, to be honest with you. <laughs> She's three years old. Give her a break. <laughs> yeah, but she, like, you know, I showed you, she cut all her hair off. Just because her brother was going for a haircut, she, she just said, I need a haircut and chopped all her hair off. Uh, no, I mean, they're all, like, individuals themselves, and they're all extremely funny and... And, uh, yeah. Isn't that the key to it all? Yeah, because we're not Everybody's saying, here's a tick list of what the perfect child should be, what the perfect childhood should be, what, you know, uh, what the perfect life should be, what the perfect mother should... There's no such checklist. No, there isn't. At all. There just isn't. And a lot of it comes from this, comes from, the, from a smile and a... And following your heart, really, following uh, yeah. what's right for you in that moment and for that person that's with you, whether it's your children or your partner. Yeah. You know, and not, like, following being a sheep and following everybody else. It's not doing what's right all. for you in that moment and for, and for that person that's with you. Yeah, I agree. And it is in the moment. You're mm. absolutely right. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that any more than I do now. I've always believed it. Live for today... And it's the best way to be. Yeah. You know, there isn't a one-size-fits-all, is there? Nope, Um, not at all. So I think then on that note, that live for today, I will be remembering that. I want to thank you both so much for sharing and coming along. Thank you very much. Cheers, Alice. Thank you to everyone in our production team. This podcast was generously funded by Blesma, the Limbless Veterans Charity, delivered by The Drive Project, supported by OpenReach, and presented by me, Alice Driver, creator of the Making Generation R campaign. Huge thanks go to Sai Harmer, whose idea lit the torch paper of this podcast, and to you for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed, then please take a look at our webpage or show notes where you'll be able to find more information on support services. Should you like to listen to any of our veterans' incredible stories, they are available as part of this podcast series. The Resilience Sessions grew out of the Making Generation R campaign, a project that trains injured veterans from Blesma to tell their stories, so far to over 100,000 people, from the young and vulnerable to frontline services and first responders across the UK. To find out more about Making Generation R and to book a free talk and workshop if you're a school, just Google Making Generation R. If you'd enjoyed listening today, then please do subscribe, give us a five-star review and share it with your family and friends. You never know who it might help.